Hey everyone, you're listening to the first episode of season two of The Wildlife. Yeah, the first of ten. Here's how it's going to work. We will be releasing five episodes on a bi-weekly schedule, breaking for one month and then releasing the next five. Yep, and the lineup, which we are really excited for as well. Today's episode, of course, about the origins of complex life, and it's going to cover a lot of different topics, uh, from whether or not plants can be considered intelligent, to bioluminescence, animals at farm, magnetoreception, and it all ends with the end, in an episode about mass extinctions, with a focus on the most famous of all, that of the dinosaurs. We couldn't be more excited to share our work with you after, what has it been, six months? Yeah, something like that. And just as we ended the last season, we want to begin this one on the same note, with a thank you. To those of you who have been following since the beginning. And new friends. Thanks for listening. This is The Wildlife. I'm Richard. I'm Devin. Stick around. not though i like i'm I'm more inclined what you're hearing right now is a debate richard and i have been having for years and i'm totally right in that debate doesn't necessarily and it's about aliens now before you think what i think you're thinking which is why are we talking about aliens on a natural history and biodiversity podcast the answer is well I mean, technically speaking, if something is alive on another planet, that would be the wildlife of that planet, which would be the natural history and biodiversity of that planet, right? And so it, it works. It all it, it connects. And to Richard's credit, he makes some compelling arguments, like this one. Yeah, I just, I just think if you just look at the numbers, really, that, yeah, there's a lot of more science to it than that, but it's just, it really goes beyond like the scope of comprehension with how vast the universe is and like have you ever have you ever seen like a video or anything that really talks about like the true difference between like a million and a billion or just like how many combinations of cards you can actually make with a deck or just anything like that to really help like wrap your mind around how large larger numbers actually are yeah and um, yeah having having looked into things like that it's just you see the numbers in i i mean i can't even count that high like i don't even understand i didn't understand what these numbers meant until i looked them up because say like with the amount of stars there's there's a there's estimated a septillion stars in the observable universe like do you know how high a septillion is (laughs) right I yeah. didn't know how high a septillion was until like ten minutes ago, <laughs> but it's one followed by twenty four zeros. That's so, that's a lot of zeros. So that's a lot of stars, and they talk about that like on average, a star usually has one point six planets around it. Okay, so, so I, okay, yeah, yes, and like there's the whole you know. If 99% of the people in the world don't find you attractive, then that still means that uh, 76 million people do. Yeah. 
I actually just saw that today. Basically, Devin is closed-minded and doesn't think complex alien life is out there. No, see, what I'm saying is not that it's impossible, but just uh, improbable. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. I'm basing that on the fact that the same could be said about what happened on the only planet that we know for certain has complex life. Earth. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised with you, but I may be wrong too. (laughs) Great, you brought back up. Who's this? This is Dr. Nick Lane. He's a biochemist and professor at the University College of London, not to mention a writer, particularly of the book that inspired me to reach out to him in the first place. It's called The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is? Bit of a broad question. Well, I mean, yeah, (laughs) any question about such a multifaceted topic is gonna be, right? But it's precisely the right question to be asking when thinking about things like life on other planets. So where do we begin? Where else but the beginning? Nice. So the origin of life, well... So here's the thing about the origin of life in general. It's complicated, and as far as we know, it happened once a very long time ago, and... We don't know, and we probably never will know. Ever. I mean, there are people out there right now trying to pinpoint this and replicate certain conditions and things, but it's not like we can hop in the TARDIS and go back to the beginning and see for ourselves. But what we can try and do as scientists is try and understand the principles uh, that might give rise to life, and in that sense, it's, it applies to Earth, but it would apply to other places as well. And problem is? I would say there's very little agreement in the field about what those principles are because the question is kind of a really extended question. After all, this really isn't one question with one answer. It's a whole series of things from the the very first chemistry that gives rise to organic molecules uh, right the way through to the self-organization of um, molecular machines inside cells which are amazingly complex Well, we've got to be able to start somewhere, and clearly y'all did, so where do we begin? LOL. Begin. (laughs) Uh, Richard, think back to middle school. Do you remember the main characteristics of life? Yeah, it's like, um, reproduction and, uh, response to stimuli and all, yeah. To me, I guess the key thing about the origin of life, and this is, it it sounds almost silly because after years and years of thinking about it and wrestling with these questions, I think it comes down to the word growth. Yeah, growth. Growth. See, without growth, many of those things are irrelevant or wouldn't occur in the first place. You need to have an environment which is not just making organic molecules, but is kind of making them um, continually... Much like us. I mean, we're constantly breathing burning uh, organic molecules to provide the energy that we need, not just to move around and not just to think, but to repair all the bits and pieces of cells to make new cells and so on. Makes sense. Like the analogy, by the way. And when you have that, um, when you have growth, you've got reproduction, you don't have genetic heredity yet, but, but it would, I think, arise in that kind of an environment. Check. What do you mean? Well, let him talk a bit more and I think you'll see. So what kind of environments would drive growth? Well, they're the environments that are kind of continuously active. Uh, things like hydrothermal vents where you have a continual flow of reactive fluids going into into the early oceans. 
um, that's the kind of setting that will lead to a continuous reactivity. Ready to explain yet? Hold on. Okay, well, the first kind of cells, something like bacteria... They're tiny things that you can't see except with a microscope. They were still complex. To get that level of complexity, even in cells, requires natural selection. And to get selection requires growth and copying of, of, of some sort. And that requires an environment which is going to just be continuously feeding growth. Um, and that requires effectively a, a planet that... Um, is geologically active, which is continually feeding growth as a, as a whole planet. Um, and, and it turns out that quite a few planets do do exactly that. That yeah. um, Not just planets, Mars probably was like that, but uh, mm -hmm. currently in the solar system, places like Enceladus. Boom, Enceladus. Just one of the moons of Saturn theorized to possibly harbor life, and it isn't even in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, but bacterial life, you see, that's precisely my point. That hardly matters, though, because... In the way I see it, even if there's one other planet with bacterial life just in the solar system, out of all the billions of planets and star systems that exist, that, I think, drives the possibility of complex life up by a long shot. Well, remember, I'm not completely writing off the idea that something more complex can exist. I'm merely saying that it isn't as likely or it's improbable and to understand what i mean you have to understand what happened on earth itself was very improbable very early on we see signs of bacteria fossil fossils that look a lot like bacteria from close on four billion years ago um and then we see effectively no change we can see in the rocks that there was there was a lot of evolution that metabolic pathways evolve, things like photosynthesis, so using the sun to split water and, and steal the hydrogen from water and make organics from that. Um, that happened maybe three billion years ago, between two and three billion years ago. But, but still, the cells that were doing it were all bacteria. They're very simple, very small cells, the kind of thing that if you find on another planet, you're going to, hey, there's life here, but it's, it's, not, it's not kind of sophisticated aliens that are going to cross-examine you. Um, so it's an interesting long, long gap from the origin of life on Earth to the first really complex cells, the kind of cells like our, like, like our own cells or like plant cells um, or algae that you see in the oceans today as seaweed. Um, it was two to three billion years for this more complex cell type to arise. And it, so, you know, it begs the question, why did it take so long? Was it genuinely improbable? Let's call this section Improbability 1. Richard, did you hear that? Two to three billion years for something as simple as algae to arise. Here are some other numbers. We've also had five mass extinctions where virtually all life on the land or sea went extinct. Just imagine a planet older than ours where perhaps these extinction events didn't occur. No meteor 65 million years ago. And don't ruin our finale. You know what, just, just listen for a moment. Life in the beginning. Well... We, we can only really be guided by um, modern-day bacteria. We assume that they were cells in that sense, that they probably had a membrane. Um, we don't really know what that membrane was made of. It could have been a very simple one, just made from components of our own membranes, things like fatty acids, which will form a similar kind of membrane but a simpler one. Maybe a cell wall, we don't really know. The very first cells almost certainly, the cells that we can reconstruct have DNA and RNA. 
Um, the very first ones probably didn't, but we don't really know what the course was to go from just organics to to that kind of heredity. So the, the first cells that would have escaped from vents and lived free, free lifestyle in the oceans would certainly have had DNA. They certainly would have been cell-like structures. They could keep the inside different to the outside, so they had membrane pumps and so on. But from the first stirring of chemistry to complex cells, that gap in time was tremendous. And there are two ways to look at it. One of them is, uh, we, what we can do is, is um, compare the genes that we have and the cell structures that we have with all other complex life on Earth. And that would mean plants, uh, other animals, uh, fungi, mushrooms and so on, uh, algae, seaweeds. Uh, but also single-celled organisms like amoeba um, and, and all kinds of uh, protozoans that live in ponds and, and the oceans and so on. And, and there's one really striking thing that you see from all of that, which is in our basic structure at the level of cells, we are almost identical. Like we're all of the same brand or bought from the same store. We all have the same basic components. So we all have a nucleus where we keep the DNA. We all have the same kind of protein structures that make up the pores in the, in the membrane around the nucleus. We all have uh, mitochondria, the powerhouses of cells. We all have uh, you know, quite complicated internal membrane systems that uh, you know, form the machinery of cells. And we see exactly the same thing in plant cells and animal cells. So the conclusion from all of that is we certainly had a common ancestor that was a complex cell. Pretty much like one of our own cells. And the disturbing point is that bacteria don't really have any of those, that complex machinery. They have it at the level of proteins, but not at the level of whole cells. They're just lacking that, really. And, and, and there are no intermediates that we know about. We've never found them. Not that they never existed. We've just never found them. So you could say, well... Yeah, there was a process that gives rise to complex life and it just happened to take over the world once, but there could have been thousands of occasions where it happened. And that might be true, um, but there's no evidence that that was the case. The only evidence that we have is that it happened once. And probability number two. So then you can turn it around on its head and say, okay, well, you know, could it have happened thousands or millions of times? In which case it will be probable and what we're faced with is just just the one case that did especially well and wiped everything else out. It seems mm -hmm. you know, reasonable and... Eh, not likely. The thing is that bacteria, there's, there's two groups of cells that are like bacteria. There's, there's the bacteria themselves and then there's another group that look basically the same and they're called archaea. Um, they're called archaea because they were thought to be even more ancient than bacteria, but it turns out that they're probably just a kind of sister group. Mm -hmm. um, and the genetic variation that you see in these two groups is immense. They virtually scoured sequence space and explored evolutionary possibility, and neither, neither have come up with anything that looks remotely complex like a eukaryotic cell. So they, they, they've kind of explored all of this evolutionary space, but it's been metabolic space, not morphological space. It's got nothing to do with complex, large plant cells and animals. They never gave rise to that. And that makes it genuinely look improbable. That there's something 
not genetic, not about information. There's something which is stopping bacteria becoming complex, which is probably to do with their structure rather than to do with their genes. So what y'all are saying is there seems to be some sort of structural difference that accounts for why life finds it so hard to grow from simple to complex. Not just that, but that the growth isn't so much a progression as it is a leap. And yes, structure, but more accurately, well, let me ask you this. At its very core, what is life? I mean, when when I wake up and I eat breakfast and exercise and breathe and exist and all these things, what is it ultimately tied to? Energy. Exactly. There isn't a general agreement about this, but um, energy does seem to be the difference. And cellularly, do you know where we get our energy? The powerhouse of the cell. Mitochondria. mitochondria. We get our energy um, from our mitochondria. So these were bacteria once, free living bacteria, that gained entrance uh, to our type of cell, same kind of cell that plants have as well. Um, and, and they effectively, they, they are self-contained power packs. Wait, what? Cells are really big on engulfing and well, we'll get there, but first... The way that energy works in cells is, is not how anybody would ever have guessed. Effectively, we're electrically charged. Like Frankenstein. It's alive! If you were to shrink yourself down to the size of a molecule and, and put yourself in the electric field right next to the membrane, the charge that you would experience is in the order of 30 million volts per meter. The thing is that you're dealing with distances that are a billionth of a meter. Um, in, in, in distance. That's the equivalent to a bolt of lightning. A bolt of lightning. Dang, okay. I mean, I knew there was, like, electrical currents going on organically, but to think that that's what it's equivalent to really puts it into a new perspective. And it, it seems to require genes to kind of regulate that charge to make sure that it doesn't you know, burn itself out. It just so happens that... And the mitochondria have their own genes, and they always have. Genes, a little, so they, they're power packs that come with their own genetic control unit. Um, and what that means is that if you want to become bigger and um, more energetic, if you like, what you need is more of these units, more mitochondria. Uh, and it's relatively easy to scale because each one is its, it's, it's kind of genetically controlled power pack and you just have more power packs. If you want to bulk up, you need more food. And what is food but energy? Okay, but who's to say this didn't happen elsewhere also? That's our next improbability. Remember how you wanted to know how mitochondria got into our cells and all eukaryotes? Going back two billion years, um, some of these bacteria got inside other cells. Now that in itself is pretty improbable if we're talking about bacteria. We're talking about bacterial cells getting inside other bacterial cells. And, you know, they're small and they've got a cell wall and it doesn't happen very often. Uh, we do know of a couple of examples of it, really only one good example of it. Well, cells are big on engulfing, like I said, but it's rare to get cells in another cell. Once they're there, chances are it's all going to go horribly wrong. I mean, think about it. Yeah, um, doesn't sound like a good mix. You, you're going to have to kind of synchronize life cycles and one can't outgrow the other one. Or else? Go bluey. Or... Uh, or turns into a kind of a parasite or a pathogen or something, and then it's likely to, to go wrong. Or if it goes too slowly, then it just gets lost again very easily. If you 
you know, we're, we're talking about a singular origin of complex life, and it, it's something that disturbs most scientists because, you know, we scientists deal in statistics, in probability, in repeatability, and then a singular event is something which, you know, most people back away from and say that's not science, that's more like a miracle. Uh, but there is a way of looking at it which is not like a miracle. It says, okay, let's take this as the starting point. Let's say that we've got bacteria inside uh, these other bacterial cells. Well, what do you think would happen next? Um, well, one thing you might expect would happen is that there would be kind of war games going on. An evolutionary arms race. So in instead of kind of thinking it's a weird singular event, you're saying, okay, well, maybe the reason that eukaryotes are so complex is because there was this kind of conflict going on between two types of cell which are living in really intimate conditions with each other, inside each other. Um, the chances of it going wrong must be really high, but also the chances of it promoting a kind of red queen type effect where you sure. just stay still and you get more and more complex just to kind of remain where you are. Uh, you know, the sheer complexity of eukaryotic cells, this, these complex cells that make us up, does smell a little bit of a kind of a runaway competition. That is just fascinating. Coevolution happens on every scale, and who's to say it doesn't happen all the way down? Now, this isn't an Adam and Eve single joining type thing. Uh, this happened probably with a lot of different cells, but one particular point in time. That, that's what we mean here by a one-time occurrence. But what this ultimately comes down to are rules. There really are no rules for life. There's no rule that says life has to get bigger. There's no rule that says life has to get more complex. There's no rule that says it has to be structured a certain way or that it has to be based in a certain thing or has to look a certain way. There, there are simply no rules. The, the, the question is, I suppose, do these principles that happen to apply to life on Earth, would they apply to life on other planets? Is it, is it something which we can generalize from or is it something which is just a you know, historical chance that it, it happened this way here and somewhere else? If you had a different structure to life, maybe it would follow a different path. I mean, again, we don't know the answer, but that boils down to questions like, for example, would life elsewhere be cellular? Would it be composed sure. the same kind of building block? And, and, and more importantly, um, would there be a requirement for an electrical charge on membranes and genes to control that electrical charge? Because that's essentially why bacteria have remained small and simple and how, how our own complex eukaryotic cells escaped from that loop by this singular event that changed the direction of evolution for, for our ancestors. Um, and I think there are good grounds to say, yes, uh, life is fundamentally electrical and you really would find that it was cellular on other planets and that those cell membranes surrounding it would have a similar kind of electrical charge. It boils down to what are the requirements for life starting in the first place. And on Earth, it's really about Hydrogen and carbon dioxide, those are the two things that you need and all life uses to make organic molecules and grow. Uh, yeah. And hydrogen comes bubbling out of the ground in the kind of hydrothermal vents that I was talking about earlier on. And carbon dioxide, you can think of it as a Lego brick that's there in the atmosphere, it's dissolved in the oceans. You just need to effectively cobble some hydrogen onto this carbon dioxide and you've got your organic molecules. The trouble is they don't react. 
Um, you know, if we could make CO2 react with hydrogen, we can strip CO2 out of the atmosphere, no more problem with global sure. warming and so on, uh, and no more problem with energy security. We can make synthetic gasoline. <laughs> so it would be great if we could do that. Uh, and to my knowledge, you know, maybe someone's sitting on it in some company somewhere <laughs> to unveil it when the right time comes, but it's basically a difficult thing to do economically. Uh, sure. But cells do it all the time, and the way that they do it is by this electrical charge on the membrane. That's how they're operating. Um, and so, you know, what, what that charge is doing is effectively forcing CO2 to react with hydrogen. That's the bottom line on it all. Um, and, and, and so I suspect that that will be true on other planets as well. The processes that give rise to the kind of vents that are producing hydrogen should be really common. They, you know, there's a, there's a good argument to say there will be tens of billions of planets in the Milky Way or, or, or moons in the Milky Way that have similar processes. It's basically the same kind of geology that you would see. We see it on Mars, we see it on Enceladus, it's common. Um, but it, it provides an opportunity and it provides a constraint. And I think then if you're thinking in terms of statistical probability, the likelihood is that the same constraints are going to apply to life Elsewhere as well, it's probably going to be carbon-based, it's probably going to be cellular, it's probably going to have this electrical charge, and then it's probably going to face the same constraints, which delayed the origin of complex life on Earth by three billion years, and it only happened once. So <laughs> it, it looks like it might well be improbable to find complex life elsewhere too for the same reasons. Lane in his book says, We are eukaryotes in it offends our dignity to see ourselves as Johnny-come-lately genetic mongrels. I like to think of it as a uh, spin on the term uh, anthropocentric, but eukaryocentric. Um, it's hard for us to imagine that uh, not only that maybe humans aren't the apex of evolution, but that eukaryotes, while multicellular organisms, might also not be. I mean, again, there are no rules. <laughs> We're kind of making them up as we go along here on Earth. So who's to say that life elsewhere needs to be complex or needs to be multicellular or needs to look anything like it does here on Earth? That's sort of the theme for the season, actually. It's kind of a putting people in their place as far as um, being the apex of evolution and things. We're going to be talking about uh, different abilities um, superpowers, if you will, that exist elsewhere in the animal kingdom that humans can't even imagine or put to words, or the fact that other animals throughout the animal kingdom do things that we think that humans are the only ones to do. Um, yeah, the, the whole thing is really about uh, putting putting you in your place. It's kind of a little difficult sometimes to, to disentangle that from a a sense of our own importance, a sense of our destiny, that that somehow, regardless even if there's a God or not, that but there's some, some destiny that if, if God's created everything, then sure. that, you know, he's set in motion some process that was bound to give rise to us in the end. If it wasn't God, then there's something about the laws of the universe that provides a destiny which is going to lead to us in the end. And it's basically navel-gazing, you know, we're self-important, conceited, uh, and we like to think that we are the end point of evolution, uh, which of course is not remotely true. Um, and if you look at it from a, 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 a kind of broader point of view, then even 
an end point of plants and animals seems quite improbable, uh, it's perfectly easy to imagine that most planets would just have bacteria or nothing at all. But, you know, it's, it, bacteria don't seem such a problem. And it seems to me that, that it's perfectly easy for planets to be stable, bacterial ecosystems that go on doing what they did for billions of years without ever giving rise to the kind of complexity that we love on Earth. But doesn't this all make you feel lonely? In some ways, yeah. But ultimately, I think, really, it makes me appreciate life on Earth all the more. I mean, if, if, you just, if you just take a moment to think, we are improbable. The fact that we exist, you and I talking right now on a podcast, 1,200 miles away from each other, never mind. Uh, the, fact, the fact that that's even happening right now, the fact that we have blue whales and, and mushrooms and rose bushes and caterpillars undergoing metamorphosis, the fact that all of these things are happening as improbable as they are almost makes me appreciate life here so much more in the complexity that we see around us so much more it is all the more special i agree with you um and it, it would be a tragedy to screw it all up wouldn't it i think the other thing that, that looking at life from this point of view um we really are a composite of cell types that have learned to live together in an intimate way um the fact that our mitochondria are derived from bacteria and that those bacteria go back to the very origin of life gives us a kind of an unbroken energy connection with the origin of life. It's not only about genes, it's also about the cell structures and the energy of this idea that we have uh, electrically charged membranes and that electrical charge goes back four billion years. The thing that's keeping you alive now is effectively an unbroken flame that goes back four billion years to the very origin of life on Earth and unites all life on Earth. It's not just the genes that unite us, it's, it's, it's this electrical charge on membranes that's uniting us as well. And it's a beautiful thought and um, it, it gives us a, a kind of grounding in all of life that, uh, that, that I, I, I find um, beautiful. So, that being said, I might be wrong. So after all that, did your position change at all? I don't think it can. I mean, maybe I just don't really understand it in the way that I should. And if I knew different things, it would change. But for now, it's just it's too strong of a hope. And I just see a lot of it so differently. I just, I hear the same thing. And I think of a way for it to be supportive of the argument. It's kind of just like people of two different political parties. Because say, like, <laughs> no, no, no matter, we can both talk about how things make it more probable or more improbable. But the way I see it, you got to think of uh, how little we honestly understand the universe at all beyond Earth. Because in the hundreds of thousands of years that humanity has been humanity, um, it's only been in the past few hundred years that we've even really began to see 
much of our own solar system. I mean, I was looking up all these different moons like uh, Titan and Enceladus and Europa and stuff, trying to figure out things for my argument, and a lot of the discovery dates were like the 1600s. Or like there's people who are still alive today when we first sent our very first satellites and probes into space. And like even to this day, um, the percentage of the universe we can observe with our most powerful sensors and telescopes compared to what's believed to be the real size of the universe is just like relatively nothing at all. I guess that's it then, huh? I mean, our closure doesn't exactly really have any closure. We're just kind of where we were at the beginning. I guess so. You know what? That's uh, that's different for us, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, I I like the different approach of uh, more of a philosophical discussion of an episode rather than a dishing out the facts. Although we did still dish out plenty of facts, I think. Yeah. Well, I guess there you have it, folks. But uh, one one more thing. Yeah, there is one thing. A complex organism from Earth that at times could be considered an alien. Sort of. Sort of. Hi, guys. I'm a water bear. Hey. Hi. Oh, I thought... What do you mean water bear, though? I thought... Or tardigrade, right? Well, yeah, technically I'm a tardigrade, but I prefer water bear. See, some people call us moss piglets... But I find that one personally offensive. Okay. Plus, yeah. tardigrade literally means slow moving, and I'm not that slow, so whatever. I mean, it, it took you two weeks to get to the studio, but... Sorry, um, yes, you, I mean, you're small. Yes, okay. Um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. How, how, long, how long have tardigrades been around? Well, we've been around way longer than you. Like 600 million years? We were kicking it 3.5 million years before dinosaurs even existed. We were around before flowers and even before the first animals crawled onto land. Wow. Dang. I did not. Okay. That's. Okay. How big are you? I mean, or not, sorry, not big. How, how small are you? Well, I mean, considering you're using a scope to look at me. You should know we're smaller than a grade of sand and really only need a thin layer of water and dirt or leaf litter or whatever to rock and roll, but we can handle just about anything. Okay. You know, I've heard a lot about your ability to exist and handle a lot of different environments. And you, what, what's, your, what's your records? Well, I think you're talking about temperature. We can handle temps as low as 450 degrees below zero and... About 350 above. If there's no moisture, though, we can drop our metabolisms down to, like, 0.01% of our normal rate and go into cryptobiosis. You know what that is? No. What is that? Well, you should. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's suspended animation. Mr. Biologist coming at me. I was was trying to give you the opportunity to... You know, represent tardigrade. No. Okay. Sorry. Water bears. Water bears, yes. Okay. 
So, it's suspended animation. Our eggs can lay dormant for decades upon decades. We can even survive in space. Which you can't. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Space? Like, really? Yeah. That, wait, but, but, like, okay, okay. Ricky, uh, sorry, Richard. S- space? Like, we're, okay, we're space, like, in space. Aliens. Well, no. Well, at least survive in space. I mean, technically, would that be complex alien life? Huh? I don't know. But okay, how? Like, really? Can you elaborate? Well, at least for ten days or so, it takes a hundred times the uh, radiation to kill us than it does you. Again, we're superior. So basically, long after humans are gone, we'll continue to reign supreme. Okay. That's um, terrifying and fascinating harsh. and, uh, yeah, a little harsh. I mean, supreme. I mean, okay. Coming from a human. True. That's <laughs> valid, right? This is this season. Did we not say this season is about putting people in their place, right? So thank you, Tardigrade. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Thank you, Water Bear, for um, coming in and putting us in our place and showing us just how amazing you are. Thank you for having me. Actually, hey, real quick, before we get to Animal Sound of the Week, um, just want to add one more thing, and that's uh, thank you for bearing with us in this episode. We know at times it might have gotten a little complicated and a little deep and technical, but there was a lot of information, and Dr. Nicolene had a lot to share on a very uh, broad and complicated Uh, topic with a lot of yeah a lot of angles and things so um if you are interested though in one more pretty cool bonus fact about mitochondria and how many we have in our bodies and things like that stay tuned at the very end of the episode for a bonus with dr nick lane and now it is time for the animal sound of the week. The animal sound of the week. Well, with the new season, it's time for new animal sounds of the week. And this week, we've got a special sound. Well, I mean, it's an animal sound. And it's the, the one of the week. And anyway, uh, here it is. Um, Richard, you want to give kind it a go? Creepy. I don't even. It makes yeah, I, a couple different sounds. Which I'm wondering which one I should try to replicate. I know that's where I'm kind of struggling here. I mean, I could do like the. Uh, oh, no, that oh, even work. Oh, what about oh. that? No. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't really know where to go I, with this one. I feel like I've said that I, like yeah, the past six episodes, though. Well. I mean, that's the point. In all fairness, we're humans. We can do human sounds, but you know. Generally, if it's something that's hard to guess, it's going to be hard to replicate the noise. Okay. How about this? On the count of three, we'll give it our. Uh, we'll do one, two, three, animal sound, and we'll and we'll do our best go at it. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Ah! 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 As always, send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. 
<laughs> Remember, if you have questions for us that you want and they need answered, you can submit your questions by sending us a Facebook message at the Wildlife Blog. Or you can click our big green button that says Ask TWL on the front page of the website. There are no such thing as bad or dumb questions. The whole of human knowledge came to be only after millions and millions of wrong guesses, near misses, and failures. So never, ever be afraid to ask or try to guess based on what you've observed and already know for that matter because that's how we learn. It's the scientific process. Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at the wildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the wildlife. When you become a patron, you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear in our show to ask your questions or help read the credits. For sources and a more in-depth look at what we've talked about today, check out thewildlife.blog. As always, if we've made a mistake or got something wrong, please let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to correct our error. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share it with your friends. How much, how much mitochondria do we, as humans, how much mito, uh, of our bodies are mitochondria? Well, it's close on 40%, I think. I mean, it's a little difficult to count, but we've got sure. hundreds or thousands of them uh, in all our cells. And they make up quite a large part of it. They make up the majority of our DNA as well. Um, so we have a lot more in the nucleus, but we have many more mitochondria than we, you know, we have two copies of each of our genes in the nucleus of every cell. Um, but we've got thousands of copies of the mitochondrial genome in every single cell. So uh, we are, you know, large part bacterial. That's so cool. <laughs> uh, that's so neat.